2: Hi, I'm Jamie Buss, and I'm a former commercial litigator who used to weigh 242 pounds. When I was 38 years old, I lost over 50 pounds through a regimen of exercise and better nutrition. It took me a year to reach my goal, but I thought if a type A personality like me could do it, really anybody can. I'm still asking questions and learning about what it means to live a healthy lifestyle. Please join me on this continuing journey. Today, we'll learn about behavior barriers to medical adherence with Dr. Michael Vallis. We'll discuss your gut microbiome with Shauna Lindzen. We'll find out how to make someone feel loved with Dr. Lise Janelle. And lastly, we'll discover the connection between mind, body, spirit, and your health with Joseph Kehoe. But before we get to that, here's your tonic quick shot of healthy headlines. We frequently talk about the importance of the gut-brain axis on this show. In a new study from the Louisiana State University Health Sciences Center, researchers found evidence that a molecule containing a very potent microbial-generated neurotoxin, LPS, derived from the gram-negative bacteria in the human gastrointestinal tract, generates a neurotoxin known as BFLPS. That neurotoxin is a pro-inflammatory contributor to Alzheimer's disease probably know that testosterone is the hormone associated with sexual and aggressive behavior in males. But a new study out of Emory University suggests that testosterone also can foster friendly, non-sexual, pro-social behavior in males when it's contextually appropriate. What's more important to your exercise regimen? Frequency or intensity? Researchers in Australia believe that the answer is frequency. A new study out of Edith Cowan University proves that a little bit of daily activity is more beneficial than longer periods of exercise spread out across the week. And happily, it also suggests you don't have to put in a mountain of work every day. That was your Tonic Quick Shot. We'll be joined by Dr. Michael Vallis in a moment. But first, a little bit of business. Hi, this is Jamie Busson. I'm not only the host of the Tonic Talk Show and podcast, I'm also the publisher of the Tonic Magazine. The Tonic is published six times a year and is delivered with the Globe and Mail to home subscribers in Toronto, west of Victoria Park. It's also available free on racks at over 100 locations across the GTA. And if you miss it, you can also read The Tonic online at thetonic.ca. Hey, if you like The Tonic Talk Show, I know you'll love The Tonic Magazine. Dr. Michael Vallis is a registered health psychologist practicing in Halifax. He's a health behavioral change consultant and associate professor in family medicine at Dalhousie University. Dr. Vallis and a team conducted a qualitative research on Canadians living with type 2 diabetes with a cross-sectional comparison to evaluate economical, social, and behavioral challenges impacting medication use, and he's here today to discuss it. Welcome to the show, Dr. Vallis. How are you?
0: I'm well. Thanks for having me.
2: So your research was recently presented at the American Diabetes Association annual scientific meeting exploring barriers to medication adherence. Can you explain what that means and summarize your research for those who might not understand it?
0: Yeah, absolutely. And maybe I'll put a simple context on it. In the medical field, when someone's diagnosed with a chronic disease, what we tend to do is we tend to recommend that they Take their medications, we teach them how to take it, and then we think they're good to go. Right. Turns out that they're not. Medication non adherence is extremely common. The World Health Organization estimates that between 30 to 70 percent of medication for chronic conditions aren't taken consistently. So when we created this project, we wanted to really give an opportunity to change the perspective. So rather than the person with type two diabetes feeling like a failure because they can't follow what the doctor asked them to do, we wanted to really understand their behavior. And so we did that really in three ways. We searched the literature and looked at, um, you know, what the science of of this field already tells us. Um, And then we also have a theory that has been very well developed to help explain behavior. But the most important piece of this study is we wanted to talk to people and understand their lived experience. So this particular study that we presented at the American Diabetes Association was the results of this, what we call qualitative, so a series of interviews with individuals across the country in Canada, representative of geography, of type of medication, of gender, so that we could get a a good sample of what are the differences between those people who are able to maintain their medication adherence over time and those who don't.
2: Okay, so what are the types of medications that people who have type 2 diabetes would take that would fall into the category of the types of medications that people struggle to
0: take? That's actually quite important. And a and good way to think about it would be the different classes of medication. Sure. So first of all, there's oral medication, so pills that you swallow. Yep. And there are a lot of these different types of medications. This is one of the really benefits of having type 2 diabetes currently, if there are benefits of having type 2 diabetes, and that is that there's a lot of medical therapies available. And the general types of medical therapies available from an oral therapy – is um, medications that might slow down the digestion so that the glucose doesn't peak really, really quickly after a meal. It kind of spreads it out. There may be medications that, you know, tickle the pancreas so that it sort of puts out a bit more insulin to kind of naturally control the sugars, or recent medications that work in the renal system where you you literally pee out some of the excess sugar. So those are the the pills. And then there are injections. Right, And the two main injections are insulin, which um, if you think about uh, diabetes being a, a problem with not enough insulin. Either the body's producing insulin but it's not being used well, which is type two, or the body doesn't produce insulin, which is type one. Then the insulin actually directly lowers the blood sugar. So those are what might one might think about as the sort of really the big guns. And then there's a new form of injectables called incretins, which work yep. with peptides from the gut. And they are very effective at lowering blood sugars but don't impact hypoglycemia or, or they don't, you're not at risk of your sugars going too low.
2: So what are, what are some of the reasons that you came across why people can't stick to the regimen?
0: You know, that's actually a really, really important question. And I think what I'd really like to emphasize is to normalize non-adherence. So if any of your listeners are thinking, oh, no, that's me, and they're holding their head down thinking, I know I shouldn't do that. My doctor will be upset. I know I told my nurse I would do it. We really want to normalize that it's actually not easy. Uh, It sounds quite straightforward, but it actually isn't. And there are a lot of factors that get in the way. And this is where that theory I had mentioned a few minutes ago comes into play and it's a very simple theory and it would say the following. You can describe behavior by looking at capability, does the person have the knowledge and the skills, by opportunity, does the person have the finances, the supports, the circumstances that support it, and the motivation. Right. And those three factors all have a lot of bearing on adherence. People find that there are challenges with medication taking. So just as an example, COVID has increased people's concerns about medications across the board. That just makes perfect sense. And so what we're seeing then are there these number of different factors. So the research is really wanting to partner with people living with diabetes to kind of say, Hey, can we work together and understand what's really happening for you so that you and I can figure out the solution? Is it a, Is it a a capability issue? Is it an opportunity issue? Is it a motivation issue or a combination of those?
2: When you're talking about COVID-related reluctance, is it that people are doubtful of the efficacies of the medicine or they're concerned about side effects and and therefore they're reluctant to stay on the program?
0: There's actually a a very straightforward way of understanding one's likelihood of adherence. And we call it the, the needs and concerns analysis. In other words, I teach my colleagues to ask individuals living with diabetes two questions. Question number one, to what extent do you think you need the medication? Right Now, if you think about type 2 diabetes, for a long time in the journey with type 2, it's quite asymptomatic. Right. So if your doctor starts saying, I'd like you to take a third medication, and the individual is thinking, do I really need that? Like, right. I'm not so sure. And so that would predict adherence. And the second question is, to what extent do you have concerns about this medication? Right. So when you start to look at perceived need and perceived concerns, not us telling the patient they need the medication and trust us, we know it's safe, but asking the person what their attitudes are and spending a little bit of time drawing out what their perspectives are, then what you'll discover is that these attitudes shift and COVID has increased concerns about medication across the board. We've seen this across many, many different chronic conditions.
2: But I presume this issue pre-existed COVID, right? Like people who had to take medicines for chronic conditions maybe weren't so consistent whether there was COVID or not. And, you know, I'm no psychologist, but it seems to me that there might be sort of like a fatigue, you know, like, oh my God, I have to do this for the rest of my life, right? Does that come into play?
0: One hundred percent. And that reflected the kind of results from our study, because what we found is that those that were struggling to take their medication, there was a real emotional burden attached to it. And so absolutely fatigue and burnout and the sort of accumulated, I'm just getting tired of this, is a very uh, important aspect to, to manage. And one of the hopeful outcomes of this research is to bring those attitudes and emotions that the person experiences into the medical exchange. So it's just not as simple, you're gonna get diagnosed, you're gonna get a prescription, you go out and take it, have a good day. It'll be very much looking at these attitudes and following them over time, because as you just described, you know, you might start out the journey really quite careful with your medication, but then after a couple of years, you feel fine and you drift away.
2: With with type two diabetes, because it is to some extent a lifestyle driven disease, in other words, it's not hereditary, but you know, perhaps it's because you've indulged or not exercised or you're obese or whatever. Is there a guilt element to it? It's kind of like, oh my god, what have I gotten myself into, and now this is the result? Uh,
0: I, 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 absolutely, yeah, absolutely. Uh, and and again, that's interesting the way that you presented that because that's actually really really important, and and that's something that we're actually trying to to reframe as well. So first of all, I'll I'll just correct your. your you you. in fact type 2 diabetes is much more inheritable than type 1 diabetes ah okay and so in fact when somebody if you have a family history of type 2 diabetes then in fact that's gonna predict second is that um, there are two um, uh, factors that seem to be associated with type 2 beyond the genetics and one is age it seems as though our pancreas kind of gets tired out over time. So don't be surprised if you, as you get older, you develop diabetes. And then the third is, as you're describing, which is lifestyle-related, and that's primarily due to the amount of fat cells in your body. Right. Because the fat cells interfere with the transposition of of glucose from your bloodstream into your cells for energy. And then when we start talking about lifestyle, what is the strongest predictor of gaining weight? Being alive in North America. Right. Um, And living as a North American would live. And so it's really interesting that you raise that guilt issue because part of this research is is really trying to invite people who are not uh, perhaps the ideal person managing their condition. Invite them to really work with their clinicians to problem solve around these types of issues. And, and guilt and stigma is a known phenomenon in type 2 diabetes.
2: What was the most surprising thing that you found as a, in the course of this research?
0: I think the surprising thing is the emotional power of non-adherence. And I, I, I'm surprised by it because I, I, it tells me that we health professionals might be too in our head and not enough in our hearts. In other words, most people would tell you when they go see their doctors or they go to their clinics, it's very educational. We, we even call them across the, di- the country, we call them diabetes education centers, hmm. where you learn to manage your condition. And so what surprises us is that the emotional piece is so, so forward. But I, I, I would hesitate to guess that if you're living with type 2 diabetes and you're struggling, you're probably not surprised that there's an emotional issue there. So this is where the hope really comes from, this kind of research, to really identify this, bring it out from the dark into the light so we can help people move beyond to their next step.
2: Okay, so you've explained sort of the, the barriers. Maybe we should focus on, okay, so assuming that those barriers exist, how does that impact treatment? I I mean like there's a logical connection there, right? If you're not taking your medicine Absolutely. what happens that's next, right?
0: right? Yeah, and, and, and that's really important because what you see typically is the relationship between the person with diabetes and the healthcare provider is actually super important for the person continuing to maintain their 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 wellness through their disease. But if they're non adherent Currently, they tend to feel shamed and they don't speak. And so the consequence of poor outcomes, I believe, is directly related to the ability to maintain the relationship. So here's, for instance, how I would communicate to somebody who I might be working with. If things are going really well for you and you're on top of your diabetes and, you know, things are going really well, consider the follow-up appointment optional. If you feel like coming in, come in. If you don't, just give us a call. Let us know you're not coming in because things are fine. But if things aren't going well for you, if you're struggling, please come in. Because I really want to see you when you're struggling, not when you're doing well. And that's a little bit different from how when you ask patients in a weight room, they'll say, oh, I need to please my doctor. I appreciate the time they're spending with me. I owe them this. Right. So they tend to back away from care when they're not doing well. But the evidence on non-adherence shows that it's going to impact, like, every second patient or more. So it really needs to be brought in, I think, so that we can help people navigate. Because the the nice thing about diabetes is you can course correct at any moment. So we literally have a wide number of treatment options available. And so it's actually pretty easy to say, if this isn't working for you, let's find a different strategy to do that. So the relationship, I think, is kind of the glue that can pull that together and avoid any of the consequences that we fear from poorly controlled diabetes over time.
2: Fantastic. We have time for one last question, and that is, in a perfect world, what do you hope your research will achieve?
0: In a perfect world, I hope it gives people living with type 2 diabetes relief so they don't feel guilt, they don't feel bad, that they feel that, okay, so behavior, it just is. And I need to understand my behavior. If I'm struggling, there's probably a reason for that. Let me address that. And then the second is that we bring the emotion piece into the diabetes management. So rather than it be you know a, a, the last question that is asked, it becomes one of the very first questions that are asked so that the patient knows the person living with diabetes knows I can rely on my clinicians to not judge me, but to work with me to understand my behavior. And what I like to say is that because a lot of times what I hear as in my field is people say, oh we need we need to help people become more motivated, And I think it's not following that motivation. I think it's helping people get support to act on the motivation that they have. And our work tells us that people living with type 2 diabetes want to take care of it. But there are barriers that they need help overcoming.
2: Fantastic. Thank you so much for coming on the show today.
0: You're very welcome.
2: For great health and wellness interviews and articles, be sure to visit the Tonic.ca. We have to take a short break, uh, but when we return, we'll discuss your gut microbiome on The Tonic. If you're looking for premium natural products, choose New Roots Herbal, proudly Canadian and family-owned for over 35 years. What really sets them apart is their dedication to quality. They source only the highest quality ingredients and test each one in a state-of-the-art ISO-accredited lab. You get the purity and potency you expect. Available exclusively at fine health food stores. To learn more or find a store near you, visit newrootsherbal.com.
1: Welcome back to The Tonic, your prescription for a healthier and happier life. Here's your host and publisher of Tonic Magazine, Jamie Busson.
2: Shauna Lindzen is a dietitian and nutritionist. She is a program developer and nutrition leader at Wellspring Cancer Support Network and enjoys seeing clients virtually and doing corporate wellness lectures. She runs practical cooking demonstrations that combine scientific knowledge with culinary education. Her demonstrations are unique, informative, delicious, and a lot of fun. And you can find a list of her nutrition classes and recipes at shaunalinzen.com. Welcome back to the show. How are you?
3: I'm great Jamie how are you?
2: I'm doing really well today it's one of those days yeah (laughs) you caught me on the upswing Uh, today we are going to talk about gut microbiomes
3: yes a hot topic
2: it is a hot topic it's everywhere and in all places this pertains to the gut brain connection do you want to explain that for a bit
3: yeah so that's actually called the gut brain axis Mm -hmm. and if you think about it, um, the connection between our gut and our brain, a good example is when you get butterflies in your stomach, mm-hmm. when you're, you're nervous about something and your brain, the connections just say, give me a, you know, give me a stomachache type of thing. And lots of people are, are scared of that. Um, so this is a really hot topic for people who are really interested in learning how to control the gut brain access.
2: You know, it's interesting at the top of the show, I've started to do little tidbits of of information and there's new research that just came out, I think this week or last week that suggests that uh, in digesting certain foods in our stomach, there is this toxin that is produced that actually is is a major contributor to Alzheimer's disease. You know, that connection is multifaceted.
3: Absolutely. And in terms of um, disease and immunity, yeah. um, 70 to 85% of our immune system is produced in our intestine. So we, we really want, it's, it's almost like you are what you eat. You really yeah. want to take in the healthiest foods you can. And also, along with food, you want to just just because there's a lot of nerve connections do you know the biggest nerve in the stomach like when we talk about the gut brain connection
2: I do and and the only reason I I uh know it is because it's also one of my favorite places in the world it's <laughs> it's the vagus nerve right
3: it's the vagus nerve good one yeah Right. i know you're you like you're a poker player I right am
2: you? a poker player but <laughs> I, this I has nothing that. to do with that but that's how i remember it actually
3: <laughs> That's, I, I like that. Good connection. So the vagus nerve connects your gut and your brain and it sends signals back and forth. Yeah. So another really good point to um, really drive home is the kind of the mental stimulation, right? Like you want to make sure that you're um, doing mindfulness. So exercise, mindful eating, eating slowly, letting everything digest well, that's really connected. And some people think if if they have um, stomach issues, that it's what they're eating. But some of the time, or even most of the time, it's um, being relaxed while you eat and really kind of thinking about calming the vagus nerve.
2: I'm possibly the world's fastest eater, which is really not good. Like, like I love my food. I have a very strange love-hate relationship with food. Yeah. And when I love my food, I will just power it down, which is actually not a great way to eat. And my daughter uh, told me of this method to slow myself down. And I, I presume it, it falls under the category of mindful eating. And that is, she said, between bites of food, put your fork down.
3: Which so, calms
2: you, yeah. So that you are not, like, so you're not actively going for your next bite while you're still chewing and digesting your food, right? Like, I, I can't do the, what is it, how many chews you're supposed to do? I'm never going to do that, right? Like, like counting if, the chews. Counting, like, it's just not me. I don't have the patience for it. It, does, it makes my food eating less enjoyable. But this is the way I slow myself down, is, is by putting my fork and, and if, if I'm using a knife, a knife down so that I'm not constantly ready for my next bite.
3: And do you find that if you're eating alone, you could be more mindful rather than if you're around like a table of um, people, like, you know, four or five people? I find if I'm eating alone, I can really concentrate more on the mindful eating and eating slower and kind of um, enjoying each bite.
2: Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, My household, we have dinners together. That's a rule,
3: which is lovely. And I love that. It's it's interesting because unfortunately it may take away from some of the mindfulness, right? Yeah.
2: Well, I was going to say the exception is lunchtime, like lunchtime. We do our own thing, like, like breakfast. I'm reading like we're reading. We're old school. We read the newspaper and and we'll have breakfast probably quietly lunch lunchtime. We kind of do our own thing. Uh, Mm -hmm. I'm a big puzzle guy. So for me, I'm focusing on on crosswords and Sudoku and, and that kind of stuff during lunch. And I've been accused I've been accused of being on the spectrum because, you know, if I do happen to be doing it and there are people having lunch at the same time, they'll be having conversations, assuming that I am listening where I am totally zoned out. I am totally immersed in the puzzles in my my lunch. And I am not aware of any conversations. And they get very frustrated with me because they'll say, but we, we talked about this with you. And I said, no, I was sitting at the table while the two of you were talking about it, <laughs> but I was not participating. Anyways, this has nothing to do with digestion, but, <laughs> yeah. but I'm just telling you that um, that's my focus when I'm eating. So I don't know if that's helpful or not for mindful eating.
3: I think it's your brain works so quickly, right? So yeah. when you eat, you're really excited to eat the food and you eat it really quickly. And true. It does take kind of a step backwards to get into the mode of the mindful eating, which I do – agree that it's, it's better for your gut health because you know, you, you digest it well and you're not, you don't take in as much air, that type of thing.
2: I tend to do everything quickly. So yeah, for me, slowing down is, is a key. So that's good advice. Mm -hmm. So let's talk, let's switch gears a bit. Let's talk about probiotics and their role in digestion and this whole mind gut access
3: which is still a buzzword. Like years ago, um, I remember I, I worked for a yogurt company. I was a consultant. And years ago, probably like almost 15, 20 years ago, probiotics were new to us. We didn't know what they were, what they could do for our gut health, what they could do for our immunity. And interestingly enough, the science is still not there i think personally hmm. in terms of the probiotics and but there is um there's more information that we had in the past and i do want to say for us canadians there is a really good website. It's called probioticchart.ca. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you've checked that out, but it's really handy for health professionals as well as consumers because mm-hmm. it talks about the strains, um, the application, the doses, and it gives you a lot of answers. Like if you want a probiotic for gut health, for traveler's diarrhea, for immunity, it's... It talks about the levels of recommendation according to research, so I really like that avenue instead of blindly going to the to the health food store, the the any store, and picking up a probiotic.
2: And you'll get conflicting advice. I I, I mean uh, I'm open to different interpretations and different emphases. We have a lot of nutraceutical companies come on the show and some espouse, you know, single strains, some espouse multiple strains. And it's really interesting to me because, you know, there's probably truth in all of it, but it kind of depends on what your goals are.
3: So when you put the strains together, Mm -hmm. that, like if a company puts the strains together in one probiotic supplement or pill or powder, Mm -hmm. it just means that they've been proven not to fight against each other and cancel each other out. So if you see a strain that's like 10 strain or 12 strain, they'll work um, symbiotically together. Like they're not going to cancel each other out. Got it. But what I want to say as a dietitian is if you're eating whole foods like plant-based foods, Mm -hmm. your colon is um, the area where your current bacteria will produce different bacteria in your gut, right? Mm -hmm. So if you're not taking a probiotic and you're eating a lot of plant-based foods that your body can't digest fully, that actually is a way to get good probiotics into your colon.
2: But aren't you talking about the prebiotics? Like if you're talking about that, you're talking about the fiber that's necessary. Exactly.
3: For the-, the fiber. And what the fiber does is the prebiotic acts as the food. So right. the fiber is sitting in your colon and then your bacteria, your it, good bacteria like that fiber. And they can eat the fiber and pr- produce more good probiotics. So the prebiotics are important. The probiotics are important. There's a, lot, um, there's a lot going on in there. I think it's like a trillion different bacteria. So there is um, a lot of controversy that if you take the same probiotic for a very long time, that you're doing a disservice to your gut flora.
2: How, how so? Because there isn't a necessary variety?
3: There's not a necessary variety. All of those probiotics are kind of bowling out the other probiotics. Got it. So it's such a confusing science, and everyone is so different, right? Like there's a not a one shot ball when you when it comes to the probiotics.
2: I, I mean, that's with health and wellness, first of all, it's ever evolving. number one, and number two, you're gonna get conflicting reports. So, Absolutely. you know, we, we try and we try and sort it all out for you here on the tonic, but some questions aren't perfectly solvable, I think is sort of the takeaway point.
3: Which is which is okay cuz science yeah. is changing and scientists change what they say according to what research they do. Right.
2: As, as long as we're not believing in myth, I'm okay with that, right? Like,
3: yes, I'm totally a science-based person, and I think you, you would agree that you are as well.
2: I hope so. I mean, yes. that, 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 that's what we try and do here. Exactly. Thanks so much for coming on the show today.
3: Thanks for having me, Jamie. What
2: do you want to talk about next time you're on?
3: Let's talk about the fall and fall soups and the benefits of them.
2: Fantastic. For more information about Shauna, visit shaunalindzen.com. We have to take a short break, but when we return, we'll discuss how to make people feel loved on The Tonic. I'd like to give a shout-out to our new sponsor, Omega Alpha. This company is 100% Canadian-owned. Their team consists of allopathic and naturopathic doctors, nutritionists, researchers, and other scientific professionals, all led by their CEO, Dr. Gordon Chang. Formulations are created on their 40,000-square-foot facility located in Toronto. Omega Alpha uses only the highest quality ingredients to manufacture the most efficacious yet price-friendly nutraceuticals. For more information about Omega Alpha, visit OmegaAlphaInc.com.
1: Welcome back to The Tonic, your prescription for a healthier and happier life. Here's your host and publisher of Tonic Magazine, Jamie Busson.
2: Dr. Lise Janelle is a human potential expert and relationship coach with over 25 years of experience. Since 1989, she's helped thousands of professionals, entrepreneurs, executives, and artists take quantum leaps toward their vision of success. With an extensive background as a holistic chiropractor, Dr. Lise founded the Heart Freedom Method, a powerful mind-body tool that dissolves subconscious beliefs and unblocks a transformative mindset to overcome self-sabotaging behaviors. Welcome back to the show, Lise. How are you?
1: I'm great. Thank you for having me again.
2: Always a pleasure. I like talking to you about relationships. I think you've got a lot of insight there. What I want to talk about today is uh, how to foster a relationship and, and love within it. So what do you think is the number one factor in having a happy relationship?
1: I can tell you that the only way you're going to have a great relationship is when you have two partners who are happy.
2: <laughs> yeah, I think that's true. <laughs>
1: two miserable partners together don't have a happy relationship. One partner who's unhappy, who's dreaming of having a partner that's going to save them from their woes, that's not going to be lasting very long. So the key for a happy relationship is to have two people responsible for their own happiness who share You know, a good friendship in a nutshell for me, when I want to help my clients get a clear idea of what if they are in a relationship or if they're single, what they need to aim for is to find their best friend with chemistry.
2: Yeah, I think that's right. Uh, You know, I've been I met my wife when I was 14 and she was 12. Wow. And we've been together since i have 20 and she's 18. And she is absolutely my best friend.
1: Wow, that's a beautiful story. You are very unusual. You're like I know. top 0.5% of the world population.
2: I know, <laughs> I know. It's, it's a little bit crazy and, and it's, it's a throwback. And I don't think that's the way things work today, uh, but it works for us. Um, so what do you think the most important thing we can do to make someone feel happy and loved?
1: The most important thing is to ask them. (laughs) (laughs) Because we have different languages of love. And sometimes we might think that this is gonna make someone happy, but like the surest way is how can I show you make you feel love? And you ask ask it. Naturally you can always guess little things, but Communication is so important in a relationship. Every time we communicate, we create intimacy. I'll share a a fun experience like this. A long time ago, I used to date this guy, and if you want to give me chocolate, nobody listening right now, you want to give me chocolate, Yeah. it's hazelnut chocolate.
2: Okay, yeah.
1: But he loves dark chocolate. Yep. And he would bring me dark chocolate. Yeah. (laughs) So he yeah. thought it was making me feel loved, but that's not what I enjoy. What I enjoy is hazelnut chocolate. So it's a simple, silly example, but so often what we want to do is give to others what we would like for ourselves, not understanding that it might not be so for our partner. Because look at your kids when you have children. Yep, You don't treat them the same way. One might enjoy going... By with you and The other one wants you to, to sit and help them with their math. Like there's different ways of being loved, and the surest way is to communicate, ask, and then really make sure that what you're doing is not because what you would like, but you they would like.
2: You know, going back to your 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 boyfriend who brought you the dark chocolate instead of the hazelnut. Do you think maybe he was trying to connect with you by showing what was important to him? In other words, it was almost demonstrative and explanatory, as opposed to necessarily trying to make you happy, but trying to sort of foster a relationship that way.
1: Yeah, but you—if you're asking someone, "How do I make you feel loved?" Yeah, it's true. You me dark chocolate. Fair enough. You make me feel loved. Find out what someone enjoys. And yeah. You might have heard there's a great book. It's called The Five Languages of Love.
2: Yes. Very very big on social media right now. Everybody talks about what is your love language, right? Exactly.
1: So according to, I think his name is David Chapman, there are five languages love. One is acts of services, quality time, words of appreciation, physical touch, and gifts. And if you give someone what you would like, you don't fill up their love tank. And. Mm-hmm. Different, different individuals have different qualities of, you know, what they enjoy. And I found that on average, I find that the most common language of love for men is physical touch and words of appreciation. And for women, it's quality, time, and acts of services. So what happens if, you know, your spouse doesn't do something that you want them to do, now you, you don't? do words of appreciation. So now because the partner doesn't feel appreciated, now they withdraw more um, acts of services. Like now we end up in a very dark space with that because I'm not going to do this because he's not going to do this for me and she's not going to do this for me. So I'm not going to do this for me. And I really like the analogy that everybody has a love tank. Mm-hmm. My, one of my girlfriends was sharing with me, she said, my husband needs words of appreciation. Just, it doesn't really do anything for me. I don't need them. I'll You know, I'm inner-driven. I'll do stuff just because I want to do them. But with my husband, I really need to give him words of appreciation. It's just, At first, I was like, oh, that's stupid. But now I think about it that I'm filling up his love tank. This is what he loves. And I can see that when I fill up his love tank, then he has more to give to me. And it was like, and it was beautiful to sit in action
2: between them. I, I don't think you can be in a long-term relationship without understanding what motivates and drives and, and satisfies your partner on that level. And I, I would think that when you have a long-term relationship and, and things are, are not working, it's because somebody has forgotten what, what, what their partner wants, or maybe there's just a lack of energy or, or there's a, a sameness. And, and going through those motions just doesn't seem like there's a payoff. I don't know. Like, I, I, know what, I know what makes my wife happy, and I'm sure she knows what makes me happy, right?
1: And, and it makes you feel happy, doesn't it, when you make her happy? Sure. Of course. And, but there are people who stay together for 30, 40, 50 years just because of habit, just because of the kids, just because they don't want to split their assets, and they're, like, there's no more interaction. It's actually very dangerous because love is a powerful, powerful health enhancer. The more love you have in your life, the more gratitude you have in your life, the more vitality you have, the more joy. It makes life so much more fulfilling to be conscious because loving is not um, not only a passive word. Uh, you know, I, I don't want to be loved only, I want to love. And loving is important, it, it, it's powerful, it's healing, it's joyful. And anybody who's in a, like you say, in a, in a happy long-term relationship learns to do what makes their partner happy.
2: Of course. So do you know yourself? Like, like, what's your language of love? I've been thinking about it for me. What's yours?
1: Definitely for me is quality time and acts of services.
2: Okay. So is that like drying the dishes or like that kind of stuff? Or like when act of services, what does that mean exactly?
1: Just if I'm standing there and I'm and I need help, when my partner says, "Oh, she needs help," yeah. and he, he just does it and like little things, seeing that because we are having quality time, because he's connected to me, he understands what I need at that moment. It makes me feel loved, and yeah, he's a, he's great. We have a great relationship. And
2: it's funny. I'm I'm probably the typical male because I find words of affirmation very important to the point mm-hmm. to the point where I, you know, like I, you know, thank my wife and maybe she doesn't care. Right. Like if she if she's made a good dinner, for example, and we share that duty, uh, if it's her turn and she's made a good dinner, I'll make sure that she knows that I think it's delicious and I appreciate it because that's what I would want to hear. <laughs> Did you know what I mean? Yeah. I don't know I don't know. I mean I think she likes it. I think she likes to hear I mean who wouldn't want to hear that? But but I don't know how important it is to her. I mean, maybe you're right. Maybe I have to ask her what's important. I don't know. I i Maybe I'm like the guy who brought you the the wrong chocolate. Maybe I'm just assuming that, that you know, she needs to hear what a good dinner it was. Maybe she doesn't care. Maybe she knows it's a good dinner. I don't know.
1: Yeah, but I don't think it's a problem. If you appreciate it. it's always nice and kind to be appreciative. It's not a depth, a detriment, but if, if she enjoys quality time and you don't have quality time, you can do, true. you know, words of appreciation. She won't receive it the same way.
2: That's true. Thank you so much for coming on the show today.
1: Thank you for having me. It's always fun. For
2: more information about Lee's, visit drleesjanelle.com. For great health and wellness interviews and articles, visit thetonic.ca. We have to take a short break, uh, but when we return, we'll discuss the connection between mind, body, spirit, and your health. On The Tonic The Tonic is brought to you by Purely Natural. Their liquid greens chlorophyll is the only line of soluble, grit free, and great tasting greens on the market. Join the Big Carrot for their Courtyard Market on Sunday, September 11th from 10 a.m. to 2 p.m. You can shop local vendors and enjoy an organic lunch special on the green roof. Samples, book sales, live music, kids face painting and big deals. It's fun for the whole family. Admission is free. Stop by at 348 Danforth Avenue. The Big Carrot, your one-stop shop for everything health and
1: wellness. Welcome back to The Tonic, your prescription for a healthier and happier life. Here's your host and publisher of Tonic Magazine, Jamie Busson.
2: Joseph Kehoe has been working as a spiritual master for nine years, understanding health in body, mind and spirit through practicing the mind that supports all life and connecting to the power of chi energy. He's been sharing chi uh, with people for all, from all over the world uh, through body work sessions across the pressure points as well as movement, chanting and meditation classes and ancestor healing programs, all which help people to achieve great transformation by receiving the chi energy they need for their body, mind and spirit. Welcome to the show, Joseph. How are you?
4: Thank you very much, Jamie. Uh, thanks for having me.
2: So how are the spirit, mind and body interconnected in affecting our health?
4: I think, first of all, it's very important to understand that we have all three. We have a spirit, we have a mind, and we have a body. And this is the essence of any spiritual practice, actually. So any spiritual practice is is trying to help people to understand how we use our mind and our body to support our spiritual health. Now, I think what's quite a good way of looking at this, and it's visually, I like to show this to people, is the Tai Chi symbol or the yin and yang symbol. Everybody's quite familiar with this. And in the East, this symbol is quite revered for a number of reasons. What it really shows is how life exists in the universe, this duality, the invisible and the visible together. This is true for human beings. We have the spirit and the body together, the visible and the invisible, the yin and the yang. And also the Tai Chi symbol, it shows light and dark. And ultimately, this is what's happening through our actions all the time. We are creating light or dark to a greater or lesser extent. If we do something which is wonderful to a number of people or for a country or for the whole world, we create a lot of light. If we do something which is very damaging or detrimental to people or to the world, we create a lot of darkness. And so we have to use our mind and our body to create light for our spirit, basically. So with our mind, we are taking action. We are are, are making decisions of what we want to do with our lives. We have to make decisions and make choices that use our body to take action, to support our spirituality and to, and to create brightness. So this is how it's all very interconnected. We have to use our mind and our body together to create brightness for our spirits.
2: How, how does the mind affect the body and vice versa?
4: There's been a lot of studies for many thousands of years, especially in Eastern philosophy or in Eastern medicine, in, in understanding how the mind and body are very interconnected and very specifically how different emotions that we have and mental processes that we go through affect our physical body. Now, especially if we have emotional problems repeatedly that are ongoing, for example, stress or anxiety or anger, they affect very specific parts of the body. This can be for anger, which creates inflammation in the liver, stress which creates tension in the stomach and digestive system and anxiety and fear which overstimulate the adrenals and kidneys so very very uh, literally our mind and emotions are can affect our physical body and especially as we go through as i say things repeatedly or constantly these issues mentally and emotionally can really start to affect our organs and affect our physical body And this is why it's very very important to take care of both our mental health and our physical health together Okay, so how does spirit
2: come into play then?
4: The spirit comes into this because we have to, it, there's two, we kind of have two minds. What you might see is a universal mind and a human mind. A human mind which is always thinking about ourselves, thinking about what we need, what makes us comfortable. Always we're thinking about what makes us comfortable, where we want to go, who we want to be around, who we like and who we don't like, what's going to make us happy or upset. We're thinking about ourselves all the time. But how we have to really train our mind, this is really, really important, actually. We have to allow time for spiritual practice. And I think that's why the word practice is there. We have to practice spirituality, because ultimately we have to practice the mind, as I say, which is more universal. Thinking about how to support the world around us, thinking about how to support other people, kind of unconditionally. Not thinking about what we like, or if I do this to them, they need to do this to me. But a mind, that's trying to give. And we really have to train ourselves to do this because it doesn't necessarily come naturally to us. As I say, our body has so many needs and desires that we can be very, very easily drawn into doing what our body wants us to do. So we have to really train our mind to do what our spirit wants, train our mind to, to, to take action. That's, that creates brightness, as I say, which is supporting lives of other people, supporting nature, supporting the world around us. And so that's how the spirit comes into this.
2: Okay, but why does that matter in influencing one's health?
4: So that matters because this essentially this gives us the greatest sense of fulfillment. And this, as I say, this is my own experience. Right. As we're doing really what's good for our spirits, we feel deeply, deeply fulfilled inside. We've got no uncertainty about whether we're making the right choices or wrong choices in our life going the right direction, not going the right direction. If we're practicing the mind, which supports all life unconditionally, then we know exactly what we're doing is correct. We feel the deepest sense of happiness, certainty, fulfillment, and we feel bright and contented and really like our lives are fulfilled. And that's because ultimately we are doing what our spirit wants us to do. We are doing what is good for our spirits, creating brightness for our spirits, and ultimately living the most fulfilling life and doing what we're here to do as human beings. This is what we're here to do. This is why we are here. This is why we're here um, on the earth with a mind and a body, with the opportunity to brighten our spirits. And so that's how, you know, that's how our health comes into this really because that's really what everybody's looking for. Everybody's looking for health and happiness and and truly the best way to do that is is to have a spiritual practice which is ultimately giving you the deepest sense of happiness because you do and that's my that's that has been my own experience that i say for the last decade as you start to see other people's lives improving through the work and help that you're giving to them you feel deeply deeply satisfied and fulfilled inside and know that what you're doing is is a righteous thing to do for your spirit and for yourself And so that's how it's all very much interconnected, really. We're taking care of our health mentally and physically, and ultimately we're giving our spirit what it needs, and we're doing what we're here to do as human beings.
2: If someone wanted to do what's good for our spirit, what should they prioritize? Like, how would you go about it practically?
4: Well, as I say, time allocation is actually very, very, very important. We have to get into a good routine. A routine that's, that's supporting our spirituality because we can, everybody can get so caught up in, you know, one thing to the next, the nine to five job, the waking up in the morning, having breakfast and after, after work, going out to eat and wanting to do the recreational things and our pastimes and our family and friends. Our time can be very, very, very easily allocated towards doing things which, you know, make us happy and comfortable and give us a certain sense of fulfillment and satisfaction. But really to do what's good for our spirit, we have to allocate time for it uh, because we need to get into a good routine of spiritual practice, whether that's meditation or doing classes that allow you to receive energy or doing doing work that is supporting other people's lives, allowing time for that. So that's one thing to do, I think, is the third step. We have to make a decision. okay. I am going to allocate time for my spirituality. I know that's important, to my spiritual growth, because without allocating time, okay, I'm going to very easily get caught up in in my normal routine, my normal uh, nine to five, seven days a week, what it is that I do, as I say, with my work, my family, my job, my friends. We have to make sure we're giving time for our spirituality, because without that, we get very, very easily caught up in our comforts.
2: This notion, it extends beyond ourselves and and perhaps for future generations, right?
4: That's absolutely true, yes. This can be seen in two ways. You may have kind of patterns that we create that become intergenerational. This can be seen as like energy patterns that we pass down from one generation to the next as we start having these mental, emotional patterns within us. In the East, this is what they would call family karma. And there has been studies in epigenetics in, in Western medicine now that really do see that memories from one generation can really be passed down and affect future generations. But of course also, as I was mentioning before, as our mind and emotions start to affect our physical body, it starts to affect our genome. And as we have children, they inherit everything from us. So if we have issues within our physical body, as I'd say, from within our organs, like I mentioned, fear that can really affect the adrenals, stress affecting our stomach or digestive system and anger affecting our, our liver, we can then we can give our physical body to our future generations. And they can also then be susceptible to these physical issues, but also to these mental and emotional patterns as well. And actually that's something that we with at some Kyung we really look at addressing this family karma or these inherited energy patterns. These are things that everybody is affected by and ultimately I think a lot of people don't realize it's how affected they are by it. But from my experience, doing a lot of ancestor healing with people, it really does clear so, so much that has been inherited over so many generations.
2: What else are you doing at Sungkyong? Uh, What are you offering people who might want to take care of their health?
4: Yeah, right. So we we offer um, physical kind of body work sessions that work across the pressure points around the body or the meridian system, which is helping to release tension or stress across the meridian system to increase the natural circulation of energy. if that happens, it really, really helps people to increase their vitality, increase energy levels, release physical pain. Release emotional stresses, Uh, the treatment, uh, the sessions are very, very, very effective. Uh, And we also do classes as well, chanting and movement and meditation classes, which, you know, are very much a spiritual process, really, uh, where people are working on themselves, their physical health, mental health, emotional health with our classes. And we do um, consultations and kind of coaching work with people as well tell people to understand how they can make the changes that they want to see in their life. And I think from us as practitioners through, as I say, we all have kind of decades of experience, really, we have so much experience and understanding how it is we can take care of our mental and emotional health and really to make the changes we want to see in our life. Because to do so, we have to recognize we work in patterns So we have to realize how we can get out of these negative patterns and into good habits.
2: Fantastic. Thank you so much for coming on the show today.
4: Thank you, Jamie. Thanks for having me. Really appreciate it.
2: Thanks to all my wonderful guests, Dr. Michael Vallis, Shauna Lindzen, Dr. Lise Janelle, and Joseph Kehoe. And thank you all for listening to The Tonic. You can listen or download this episode as a podcast with full show notes, contact information for our guests, and links at thetonic.ca. To find out more about the show, you can always follow us at It's The Tonic on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. For great articles by amazing health and wellness writers, be sure to pick up your copy of The Tonic magazine. The July-August issue is still available free on racks at over 100 locations across the GTA and delivered with the Globe and Mail to home subscribers in Toronto, west of Victoria Park. Or you can visit our new website, thetonic.ca. If you're interested in providing feedback or suggesting topics for the show, you can always email me at jamie at thetonic.ca. On our next show, we'll discuss the health and wellness issues that are important to you. Until then, this is Jamie Busson wishing you a healthy and happy
0: week. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.